I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. During the holidays, I spent a lot of my time waiting. Waiting in line at the grocery store, waiting at the post office, waiting for Santa. And when I have to wait, I need something to do. So what I typically do is I listen to podcasts. But here's the thing. I listen to other people's podcasts and I avoid listening to my own podcast. I know that's crazy. Frankly, I don't like the sound of my own voice. But this year I thought, you know, Jen, be brave. Listen to yourself on your own podcast. So I started listening to all of the episodes, starting with episode one. And I'd have these moments where I'd say, oh, that was a really great moment. Or that was a really great point made in episode five. So I decided to pull together an Electorette Redux episode, a collection of my favorite moments from 2017. Last fall, I did a few episodes that were focused on mass shootings and the misogynistic element of those shootings. In 2017 in Las Vegas, we had one of the largest, most deadly mass shootings in American history. That was around the same time I had a conversation with author and professor Ruth DeFoster. She's the author of the book, Terrorizing the Masses, and she is an expert on mass shootings and terrorism. This conversation was really helpful in understanding what to look for in mass shooters. We talked about the common traits you'd find in most mass shooters, including toxic masculinity. So here are some highlights from my conversation with author and professor Ruth DeFoster. Right. And so you mentioned a study on rampage shootings by Catherine Newman, right? And she knows that there are always five consistent conditions in, in these shootings. I don't know if she's specifically talking about school shootings or just rampage shootings generally or mass shootings. What are those conditions? I know it's like social isolation, access to guns. Can you recall those? Yeah. So Catherine Newman wrote a great book about rampage shootings, and she is predominantly talking here about school shootings. But having done, you know, a decade of research at this point about lots and lots of different mass shootings, I think that these are pretty universal facets that underlie a lot of mass shootings. She says that rampage shootings almost always include five necessary conditions. She says the shooter has to perceive himself, and of course she says himself here because shooters are almost always male, as extremely marginal in the social worlds that matter to him. He must suffer from psychosocial problems like significant mental illness, abuse, or drug use that magnify the impact of this this perceived marginality. She talks a little bit about media representation. She says that there have to be these cultural scripts, these prescriptions for behavior that are gleaned from news or entertainment media that have to be available to lead the way toward an attack. There have to be a failure of surveillance systems that are intended to identify troubled individuals before their problems become extreme. And then finally, gun availability. So the fact that, you know, our gun laws in the United States are clinically insane. That underlies almost every mass shooting. All right, so what does she mean by media prescriptions? Well, this is partly what I argue in my book, too, that she's saying part of the reason that these shootings are increasing in frequency is because they garner so much media coverage. So there's this chicken and egg problem where if you are a man who has significant psychosocial or emotional problems and who has decided for whatever reason that committing a mass shooting is a way to sort of cement your masculine status as a powerful man, it's very easy to find examples of other men who've done this in the United States and to find these cases where these mass shooters have specifically, I mean, very deliberately applied media considerations to their shooting. I mean, you think about Cho Sung Wee in 2007 at the Virginia Tech shooting. He mailed a media kit to NBC News 
in between the two shootings. He created this kit with video and photos and a manifesto. Elliot Roger did the same thing at Isla Vista. The Charleston shooter, Dylan Roof, had, had an entire website that he'd created with all these materials in his manifesto. So increasingly, you're seeing these shooters who are creating, they're creating a media event. And that's what they're attempting to do is, is to use the news media in pursuit of their goal of infamy. Right. And I wanted to talk about the branding that you mentioned, because they do brand themselves, sending media kits. And also, there's a trend of taking kind of these hyper-masculinized photos of themselves. Yeah. Well, two of the cases I look at in the book are the Charleston Church shooting and the Orlando nightclub shooting. And one of the things that I just was really struck by when I started doing research into these two cases is how similar these two shooters were. They weren't presented as being particularly similar in news reporting about these two cases. One was presented as a terrorist, while one was this sort of mentally ill boy next door gone wrong. But they're both these very young men in their 20s who self-radicalized on the internet and who, when you look at the photos they took of themselves, both clearly felt emasculated. Like they felt that they had had been denied some vision of like prototypical or powerful masculinity. They took these photos of themselves glowering into the camera. They took these photos of themselves where they're flexing and they're very carefully not smiling, of course, in any of them, where they're holding weapons, where they're approximating, they're, they're copying these, these images that they see in films and in TV shows and in video games of these men who are adopting this incredibly bulky, powerful, hyper-masculine vision of, of what power looks like. And for both of these young men, they both had significant problems with drugs in the run-up to both of these shootings. They both had problems with women. And they both had issues in school where they had lashed out with violence because they felt as if they were not being taken seriously or because or that they had been sort of emasculated or picked upon by, by other students or that their manhood had been questioned. There just were so many similarities. And when you look at the photos of the, that they took of themselves, it, it just becomes really clear that they were trying to sort of play this part and they felt that they'd fallen short of this standard. One of the things I often hear in the media in relation to these shootings is that the shooter must have snapped, right? You hear the word snapped all the time. Yeah, there's a TV show by that name. <laughs> oh, that's right. There is a TV show yeah. called Snap. That's right. It's, it's you know. Um, so what is the problem with framing these shootings or the shooters as having snapped? Well, the problem is that mass shooters don't snap. They predictably move down a path toward violence. And in every mass shooting I've ever studied, this wasn't a case where, you know, this guy's going about his life and one day he just can't take it anymore. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and he goes off. It does not happen like that. These are men who plan these shootings in advance, carefully, meticulously, with an enormous amount of forethought. It's not a matter of snapping. And so to reduce it to just this simple explanatory variable of it. Well, first of all, it suggests that it wasn't their fault, right? That these external things just built up and built up until they couldn't take it anymore. Second of all, it's just false. So we, we tend to have this image of, you know, that anyone could just become violent. And, and that's just not true because again, this isn't, this isn't a problem that's committed by this accurate cross-section of all Americans. This is a crime that's committed by men. It's only men who are doing this. So why is that? It's not because they're snapping. It's because of this confluence of other social elements. And it's because they're planning to do it. They're choosing 
to commit mass shootings. Let's talk a bit about the misogyny and the misogynistic elements of these shootings. There isn't always evidence of romantic rejection in the picture, right? So in what ways are all of these shootings misogynistic in nature? Well, so, I mean, there's a scholar named Jackson Katz, and he has a great documentary film that I highly recommend about this. It's called Tough Guys. That's G-U-I-S-T, where he talks a little bit about just the fact of masculine violence as itself being a facet of misogyny, that, you know, 90% of convicted murderers are male. What does that mean? Is that misogynistic violence? Arguably, yes. You know, 99% of convicted rapists are male. The vast overwhelming majority of mass shooters are male. Now, in, in all of these cases, they don't necessarily have an explicit component of romantic rejection or of hatred of women, but in a surprising number of them, they do. I mean, if you look at like Elliot Rogers' video that he put on YouTube before he committed the Isla Vista shooting, where he talks about his alienation and romantic rejection from women, the Red Lake School Massacre, the Virginia Tech shooting, the Northern Illinois University shooting, Omar Mateen, Nadal Hassan, all of the cases that I look at in my book. In every one of those cases, these are men who either had been rejected by women or felt emasculated or were worried about some component of their ability to fulfill their imagined destiny as a masculine man. In 2017, I also spoke with Professor Pamela Nettleton. She is an expert on domestic violence. She's also extensively studied the media's portrayal of domestic violence. In these highlights, Pamela and I talk about some of the statistics and trends around domestic violence. So here are some highlights from my conversation with professor and author Pamela Nettleton. So you wrote an essay, which is a part of the collection from Dangerous Discourses, and it's about media coverage and magazine coverage of women who kill their abusers. And I was reading through one of your essays and I was kind of stunned by the numbers, the numbers comparing violent crimes committed by men in comparison to violent crimes committed by women. The One of the statistics that stood out to me was that one in four women have either been beaten or killed by their partners. Is that? No, I, um, that's true. It's a really ugly statistic. And it usually gets a good gasp in a college classroom. It's hard to um, believe that, particularly if you are young enough that you haven't been out in the world for very long yet. The statistics are brutal. The CDC, National Crime Statistics, and various government and private commissions on intimate partner violence tell us, first of all, that if a woman is beaten or killed, it is almost always who she lies down next to, always boyfriend or husband. The stranger danger is not really uh, so accurate for women. If you're going to be beaten or murdered, it's going to be somebody you know. And nearly one in four women, sometimes it's one in four, sometimes it's one in three point something, are beaten or killed by an intimate partner. Beaten can be maybe a one-time occurrence or it can be a chronic pattern that escalates and results uh, too often in death. And the suspicion is that number is low because most victims of domestic violence, we guess from what domestic violence victims say, do not report it. Um, another uh, troubling, very troubling statistic, and this drives my research, is that that intimate partner who is doing the violence is overwhelmingly likely to be male. Men commit 100% of the rapes, 92% of the physical assaults, 97% of stalking against women and against other men, 
men are perpetrating 70% of the rapes, 86% of the physical assaults, 65% stalking. So what we get out of this is that we have got a culture that supports male violence and something is amiss there to do. That You're right. And I think one of the things that you mentioned in the essay is that women who do strike back find themselves in prison. Does that also feed into the message that women are not, you know, they may be a threat in the moment, but they're not a long-term threat. As soon as they as soon as they take out their abuser, they're locked away and society is safe again from this rabid woman and and now she's, you know, been cold. Right. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Um I, I you know, we can't say, we can't know how many women killers aren't caught or aren't tried. I mean, there could be women who are successful at this and it's a really creepy thing to even talk about, but there may be women who do this and are not caught. We have to admit that there'd be no way for us to know that. But what is in media coverage of this is she does it and she calls the police and reports herself or she does it and 10 minutes later she's in a cop car or she does it and the trial is imminent. There doesn't seem to be a big manhunt. She isn't on the run. That kind of stuff does not attach itself to this narrative. And what we also know is an incredibly high percentage of the women who are in prison for something, if women are in prison for murder, 90% of them were battered by the people they killed. That's who women kill. They kill the person who's beating them up. In my most recent episode with professor and author Kate Mann, she's the author of the book Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. We discussed the crimes of Elliot Roger. He was the Isla Vista shooter. And we discussed the misogynistic nature of his crimes, as well as some rather controversial analysis following those crimes. So take a listen. You talk about the idea of not wanting to utter the word, the word misogyny, and wanting to stuff it back in, mm. in relation to Elliot Roger. And Elliot Roger was the Isla Vista shooter. Yeah. And so Roger had a well-known manifesto where he talked about why he felt the need to carry out the shooting, what his motivations, right? Basically, you know, he pointed to romantic rejection. And so what I really found shocking was how many people rejected the idea that there was anything misogynistic about this crime. I mean, can you explain some of the reasons that were given for saying that this crime was not misogynistic in nature? Yes, that was exactly what got to me. So the initial story was horrifying this man, 22-year-old man, who had felt sexually rejected and who had uploaded this video pre-confession, as well as a a written so-called manifesto, really more of a memoir, outlining his grudges against the women, the quote-unquote hot blonde sluts who had refused to give him sex and attention and love. And it just seemed to me so paradigmatic of misogyny, so paradigmatic of a certain kind of aggrieved entitlement, which when it becomes toxic and violent is such a common source of damage to girls and women, including in America and Australia, but also in other parts of the world. Roger's crime, in fact, seemed to me to have more in common with so-called honor killings than many American commentators would have one believe. But that was the thing. There was a sort of a series of rank denials of Roger's misogyny in the media that seemed to be so confident and to be reaching around for reasons why this couldn't be misogyny that it looked, it looked to me like motivated reasoning, that there was a real reluctance to say that this even could be misogyny 
such that the diagnosis offered by feminist commentators and which I found natural was dismissed out of hand for various more or less spurious and post-hoc reasons that I try to canvas in that first chapter. So it looked like the, the denialism around this obvious instance was symptomatic of the ways in which misogyny goes under the radar, even when it's incredibly brazen and incredibly unsubtle and incredibly obvious. Well, you know, in this case, I mean, I thought that the case of Elliot Roger, I thought the link to misogyny was pretty obvious. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the reasons that was given was the idea that misogyny and desire couldn't coexist, right? Mm. And because he expressed such an intense desire for these women, that his actions couldn't be described as misogyny. Yes. And what a bizarre idea that sexual desire can't coexist with hostility. It's actually the most natural thing in the world that sexual desire or desire of, of any sort, for be it for conversation or service or emotional nurture or moral labor, when that desire is unsatisfied, there's actually a very natural psychological basis for hostility, especially when that desire is combined with a sense of male entitlement to women's you know, sexual, emotional, reproductive and social services. So it seemed like this was actually an instance where it was very easy to explain the gendered hostility, and yet the label was still withheld in a a very determined way. If not him, then whom, in other words. You also talk about the idea of a naive conception or the naive conception of misogyny. What do you mean by that? So I think there's a way of interpreting the dictionary definition. So the dictionary definition generally just says something like, hatred of women. And we might want to add because they're women. And some dictionaries have actually recently expanded the definition following the Prime Minister of my home country of Australia's Julia Gillard gave what's known as the misogyny speech in 2012. But with the classic dictionary definition, there's a temptation to read that psychologistically as misogyny is a hatred in the heart, uh, harbored most usually by men in relation to women. So misogyny is kind of something in a man's mind. Whereas there's another way of reading the the classic dictionary definition that is, I think, less naive and, and more in line with feminist usage of the term misogyny, which is hatred or hostility that women face, the hateful and hostile reactions women face because they're women in a man's world namely a patriarchy historically. So you go into that a bit in chapter two, where you explore the idea of misogyny not being about the hostility men may or may not feel towards women, Mm -hmm. but rather the hostility that women feel when navigating our patriarchal social structure. What do you think the advantages of, of our shifting our view of misogyny to the latter definition? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I think one of the advantages is epistemic, So there's this danger that if we hold misogyny to be a deep psychological property of individual agents, then it will become very difficult to know or justifiably believe if someone is a misogynist. So that will lead to this epistemic problem where it becomes this term that we can barely use to name problems, even though it seems to be this powerful, morally loaded term that ought to have a political purpose. Misogyny ought to be the kind of term that we can use to name political problems as women. But 
it looked like if it is this psychological property, there's both this inscrutability aspect to it, but it also becomes something which is isolated to individual agents rather than broader social practices. So if you look at the GOP's attitude towards reproductive rights, it doesn't look like there is necessarily uh, particular agents who you can tie the hostile attitude to. Many of the relevant politicians may merely be cynically appealing to their base. We don't know exactly out of the base whom sincerely believes that women ought not to have the right to an abortion or don't have the right to an abortion and try to withhold that form of health care. But it does seem to me that the relevant practices are incredibly hostile and punitive to women who are trying to be, to have the relevant freedoms to which they're entitled to, and that those sorts of hostilities are explained aptly in terms of patriarchal social structures that are being enforced and policed via these policies that are yeah, punitive and hostile without being a property of individual agents. So centering on the women, the girls, the targets and victims of misogyny in this definition, rather than individual agents, typically men who have this psychological hostility at a deep explanatory level, I think that will encompass misogynistic agents but not be exhausted by them. Hi, this is Jen. You know, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you. Yes, you, the listener. Thank you for listening to my podcast. You helped make Electorate possible. You know, I'm just some person with, you know, lots of questions sitting at my dining room table with a microphone that I found in my garage. And I mention that because I'm a really small operation and sometimes I'll make mistakes. So if you have any suggestions or feedback, please drop me a note. I'll try to respond as best I can. And I also want to thank all of the brilliant, passionate women who've agreed to be guests on the show. They've really helped me personally survive this, you know, unprecedented time that we're all trying to struggle through right now. And I really hope you, the listener, are finding something that you need in these interviews as well. By the way, if you'd like to support Electorette, follow me on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Electorette, and I've recently set up a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Electorette. Lastly, look forward to some new content and some new interviews in the upcoming weeks. I've just started recording for 2018 and I've got a great lineup for you. I'm also going to start posting transcripts of all of the interviews, as well as publishing some supporting content on the Electorep blog. So I think that's it. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. 